uh, give you a pretty good idea of what we're talking about. Um, what is it that makes us feel that we have to prove ourselves? Because that is like a default position in our lives. And secondly, second of all, to whom do, are we so desperate to prove ourselves? You know, who is it that we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to? And I would say just about everybody, but I'm going to give you some classification. So why do we feel we must prove ourselves? Right out of the gate, one of the main reasons that we feel we have to prove ourselves is because we want to justify our sin. We want to justify our sin. Now, sin is anything that doesn't measure up for what God would call us to do, either, uh, either by commission or omission. And by the way, if you're new today and, and you don't like that word sin, because in our culture today, a lot of people don't like the word sin, okay? And, and you're new today and it's like, wow, right out of the gate, he's used that word three or four times already. I'm going to use it a lot more today, just get used to it. But that's part of our problem. This is one of the reasons why we want to justify ourselves or prove ourselves is because when we do sin and we know we sin, we don't like the word because we're uncomfortable in our sin. But when we do sin, we want to prove to everybody and, and God that, that it's okay. We want to rationalize it. I was forced to. It was my circumstances. I had no other choice. That person over there made me sin. Or we actually get, get, uh, will come to the scripture and say, well, the scripture's outdated. The scripture doesn't understand the way life is today, and therefore we get to sin. So we have all these reasons to prove ourselves by, because we want to justify our sin. Thomas Manton said this, and it's true. I've seen this just manifested everywhere. First we practice sin, then we defend our sin, then we boast of our sin. And that is kind of the progression of sin. Okay? Our consciences are funny things. They know that we have fallen short, which is an admission that we are less than we think we ought to be. We are less than we know God calls us to be. But it is painful for us to acknowledge that, and so we decide we need to justify our sin. We need to even praise our sin. We need to prove to other people that even in spite of our sin, we're good and worthy. That's just our pattern. And so we do that with our sin rather than confess it. We also want to prove ourselves to others so that we can distract people from our deficiencies. All of us are deficient in, in some area of life. We recognize that. Okay? I, I have trouble uh, figuring out cars, and I recognize that. I, I will also confess to you some of my darker sides. I've noticed over the years that if I'm in the midst of a conversation and the conversation starts to move to areas in which I am deficient, I will very cleverly and manipulatively try to move that conversation back into areas where I am competent, where I'm more comfortable so that I can do a better job of proving myself to others. So we want to prove ourselves by, um, by, by distracting people from our deficiencies. And all of us have deficiencies. We also want to prove ourselves because we're insecure. That's just a natural component of human, the human condition. Tim Bond says this, insecurity is a permanent human condition and it is not winnable. And what he means when he says it's not winnable is that um, we are constantly trying to compensate for the fact that we're insecure. And one of the biggest ways that we try to compensate for the fact that we're insecure is by proving ourselves, by talking about ourselves, by boasting of ourselves. And his point is, is that you're never gonna be able to solve your insecurities by doing that. It's not a winnable game. You and I can't win at that. But we are insecure. We're afraid of looking foolish and outdated and unknowledgeable and ordinary. We want to be known for being up on the latest on everything. We want to be with it and, and, and somebody that people look for for direction rather than somebody who might be following or, or even mediocre. We're afraid of that in our lives. And so what we do is we, we practice something called the social comparison process. 
Researchers have been talking about this for probably 50 years, and it's been demonstrated <coughs> uh, through research uh, time and time again that human beings, because of our desire to prove ourselves, and because of our discomfort with the fact that we might be deficient and insecure in areas, we are constantly practicing the social comparison process. In other words, we're always comparing ourselves to others in order to find others that we can proclaim are worse than we are so that we feel better about ourselves. That's the social comparison process. And it spawns this, this whole sentence that people like to use. It, somebody will point out in your life, you're really not measuring up in this area. And rather than taking that rebuke and that confrontation as a challenge to improve, what you do is you'll find somebody who's worse than you and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as he is. Or at least I'm not as bad as she is. You realize, of course, that this means that Charles Manson is really in a world of hurt. Because everybody can at least say that. No matter how bad you are, you can at least point at Charles Manson and say, at least I'm not Charles Manson, okay? But he can't point at anybody. So we do this social comparison process. I teach communication at Paradise Valley Community College. And it's against the law for us to um, talk about grades of, of the students, to show anybody grades of the students, even their parents. I've had parents call, hey, I'm paying the tuition for this this child, you need to tell me what their grade is. No, I'm restricted by verbal laws from, from doing that. And, and so when, when I pass back quizzes or tests or papers, I always have to fold them and hand them to them. I can't just leave them on the table. I have to hand them to the student and they have to grab uh, the assignment and keep it close. And then it's always funny to watch. When they open that sheet, there's 27 other pairs of eyes doing things. Because everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to know at least they didn't get the worst grade in the class, or they want to know if they got the best grade in the class. You know, and, and this is different now than the way it used to be. When I was growing up, you know, they used to just post our grades with our names in the hallway. Do some of you remember that? And everybody would just run to that thing, not to look and see what they got on the test, but to look and see what everybody else got on the test. You know, but we practice this social comparison. Process. When I was when I was a kid, I was a swimmer. I, I swam in you know like the Amateur Athletic Association uh, or the Amateur Athletic Union, swimming, doing all that stuff. You know the Olympics. And I never got to the Olympics. I really stunk at swimming. But I was on the Arizona Desert Rat swimming team. One of the worst. I was acknowledged as one of the worst. There was a big uh, swim meet every May at Encanto Park. They have a big 50 meter Olympic size swimming pool. It's a big meet. It kind of kicks off the season. And I remember I was, in, I was uh, like 10 years old, and I was in the 100-meter freestyle, and I ended up getting last, dead last. And this was not in the final heat. This was in the qualifying heat. I ended up dead last. 58, 60 kids who were trying to qualify for the finals, and I ended up dead last. And I was a little bummed by that. And so I went to my mom, and I said, gee whiz, I was last one. And my mom, in a spirit of love and mercy and encouragement, said, hey, I didn't want it to be me because I didn't want 57 other kids looking at me going, at least I'm not as bad as him. But that's the social comparison process. I'm also in prison ministry, and prisoners do this too. No matter what they've committed, they can always find some prisoner, some crime that's worse than what they've done. No matter what it is, trust me, they can rationalize that. That's the social comparison process. We all practice it, and we all do it because we're insecure. So we have to prove ourselves for all of these reasons. So to whom is it that we feel it necessary to prove ourselves. Well, number one is our parents. So many of us feel like we have to prove 
ourselves to our parents. And sometimes we blame our parents for that, but sometimes it's not even their fault. There is a story of Todd Marinovich, which I think is really sad. Anybody remember who Todd Marinovich? He's still alive, but who, who, who he was when he was a great man. I knew you would, Michael. He's a, he, he was a pretty good football player. His father was raising him to be the greatest football player of all time and put so much pressure on him, trained him and fed him a certain way because he wanted him to be a great NFL quarterback. And the kid was good. He was good through Pop Warner. He was good through high school. He was pretty good at college at USC. And then in the pros, he kind of flopped. But here's how his story went. When he was in Pop Warner, he'd come home and say, Dad, we won the game. And his dad would say, yeah, but the team you played was not the New York Giants. And then in high school, he'd come home and say, Dad, we won the game. And his dad would say, yeah, but the team you played is still not the New York Giants. And then he would come home. He was the quarterback of USC. And he would come home and he'd say, Dad, we beat ASU. And he'd say, certainly, they are not. I'm embellishing there. But anyway, USC would beat Stanford, UCLA, Notre Dame, whoever. Yeah, but they're not the New York Giants. And then Marinovich got drafted after his sophomore year. <coughs> he went to the Oakland Raiders. And in his first four starts, he got beat. And then in his fifth start, they were playing, guess who? The New York Giants. And guess what happened? They won. It was a close game, but Marinovich's team won, and he actually played somewhat decently. He called his dad, and he said, guess what, Dad? You finally beat the New York Giants. But he also knew at the end of that phone conversation that his NFL career was over because he had been playing football for all the wrong reasons. And it was. He never really played well again. He tried the Canadian Football League. He tried the indoor. He couldn't even make it in the indoor football league. All of his talent, but all screwed up by trying to prove himself to his dad. Uh, we also, as parents, we want to prove ourselves to other parents. If you're not a parent, you don't understand this yet, but you will. There is that look at what my kid is doing syndrome that so many of us parents have. And, and the reason we do that, here you go, the reason we push our kids forward when they do something well is by association, by connection, by network, what we're really doing is we're saying, look at it, what a great parent I am. Look at what I can do. What I can do. So we try to prove ourselves to other parents. We try to prove ourselves to our spouses if we're married. I admit, I want Jackie to think well of me. And so I'm constantly trying to prove myself to her. I have to check myself on that. Even after 25 years of marriage, I want her to believe that the decision she made more than 25 years ago was the right decision. It's like I'm constantly trying to close a sale that I've already closed. Maybe she likes it that way. I don't know. But, you know, I'm always trying to prove myself. We want to prove ourselves to our bosses, especially if you stink as an employee. You want to prove yourself to your boss. Here's one of the most damaging ones. It's, it's this whole idea of we've got to prove ourselves to ourselves. It's all a part of that self-esteem movement, which is rooted in pride, which is very destructive. It's all about pride and and, and this idea that we have to be able to say to ourselves that we're wonderful. I know it's only a movie, but in the first Rocky, which by the way, the name of the first Rocky movie was Rocky, not Rocky One. It only became Rocky One after they made the other 16 movies, okay? So in the first Rocky movie named Rocky, remember Rocky's big challenge was not to win the fight against Apollo Creed, but to what? To go the distance. He wanted to to be able to hang in there for all 15 rounds. And the reason he wanted to do that was specifically so he could say to himself, at least I know I'm not a bum. For some reason, him going 15 rounds with Carl Apollo Creed, that means he's not gonna be a bum. 
We want to prove ourselves to our friends. I have two assignments for you today that you're going to do later on, hopefully, by the grace of God. And they're both really good assignments. You'll appreciate them. Okay, first of all, do we have any Brian Ricky fans? This is a good assignment. Okay? So I want you to go home this afternoon after you've had lunch, and I want you to get on the internet, go to YouTube, write this down. I'll have those pens out, write this down. You have to you have to search in YouTube Brian Regan dinner party. Okay, some of you are shaking your head, you know exactly where I'm going. In Brian Regan dinner party, he talks about something called a me monster. How many of you know me monsters? How many of you have friends that are me monsters? How many of you are the me monsters to your friends? No hands, I noticed. Okay. Well, well, this is the me monster is the person who's constantly thinking that wherever they are, with whoever their peers are, their friends are, they have to prove themselves to their friends. It's hysterically funny. It's only four minutes, and I think it was actually filmed at the Tempe Gym Prop, so it's all good. You'll enjoy this assignment. Then you'll probably spend the rest of the afternoon, if you're not a Brian Regan fan and you've just been introduced to him, watching Brian Regan films. We also have to try to prove ourselves to our peers, and this is driven strictly by insecurity. I have a great example of this. It involves me. When I was 35 years old, I went back to college at Grand Canyon University. I, I, when I got out of high school, I spent three semesters in college at NAU and ASU. Did really, really well. 2.2 grade point average. I was slightly above the C average. Okay, that was awesome. Okay. So after, after 15 years, I went back to school at Grand Canyon University. And this was before, just right before adult education began to take off. So I was in a traditional setting, 35-year-old with a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds. And I felt very, very insecure about it. And so I fell into this pattern in all of my classes where I started asking a lot of questions during the lecture. Not to gain knowledge. The questions were creatively worded and manipulated so that I could communicate through these questions to everybody else in the class that I am by far the smartest person in the class. Pretty garbage. And so about seven or eight weeks into the semester, God gave me the grace. He gave me the gift of grace by sending his Holy Spirit into my life and confronting me in this behavior and saying, shut your fat face in class. <laughs> now, that's a paraphrase of what the Spirit said to my spirit. He was a little bit nicer about it, but I got the message. So the only time after that, during my entire college career, postgraduate career that I asked questions, was a question was if I seriously needed to procure information, and even then, most of the time, I'd wait until after class. That, that's how dark we can get with this stuff, trying to prove ourselves to an 18-year-old. I'm smarter than you because I'm 35. Just kidding. We want to prove ourselves to our enemies. Do I really need to explain that one? And related to our enemies, we always want to prove ourselves to people who don't think well of us, who, or who want us to fail, who, who have seen us fail, who are haters in our lives. And of course, the most destructive one is we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to God. This is the worst one. This is very destructive. We want to prove ourselves to God for a number of reasons. Number one, so that, so that he knows that his grace in our life was worth it. Now, I want you to think about this. He gives us grace, which is what's the definition of grace? unmerited favor. What is it that you can do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. And so he gives us the grace in our lives. He saves us from our sins. He reunites us with him through his son, Jesus Christ. He gives us the gift of eternity. And so now we want to prove to him that his grace was worth it. Which means it's not grace at all. 
if you have to work for grace, it's not grace. It's payment. And that's the second reason we want to prove ourselves to God is because we want to make him feel indebted to us. We want to do something for him so that he feels like he has to do something for us. We're constantly doing that as well. We also want to prove ourselves to God because we, we really, really, really want to save ourselves. A lot of us really struggle with the idea that God does all the saving and we have nothing to do with it. Here's what we bring to our salvation, our sin. That's it. But we want to prove to him that we are actually participating in that salvation with him. We, we want the power and the glory of our salvation, but it's all his. And then the last reason we prove ourselves to God is because we want to rationalize our sin. Which means we've now come full circle. The reason we feel like we need to prove ourselves is to justify sin, and the reason we feel like we need to prove ourselves to God is to justify sin. Clearly, sin is a big problem. So, Psalm 145 describes for us a core characteristic of God that deals with all of this idea of having to prove ourselves to God and to others. It's what Eugene read earlier. It's page 337 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Psalm 145. And it's these two verses, and they're really familiar verses if you've been around church at all very long because they're in other places as well. We're going to go to Exodus 34 next, which is one of the places where you find these, these words. But here's what David says in the midst of Psalm 135. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. Not that he doesn't get angry. He's angry about sin. But he's slow to anger. He's patient. And he is abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That is, that is David reminding us that no matter what we do, it's God's grace that counts. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what we do. There is nothing that we can do, positively or negatively, that is bigger or better than the grace that is, that is performed for us, that is given to us, that is won at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's called grace because there's nothing we can do for it. We can't do anything to make God love us less. We can't do anything to make God love us more. He's just filled with grace and mercy, and that's what he gives to us. That is a core characteristic of his. If you turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 34, which in the Pew Bibles is page 48. Now, this is... After the Israelites have left uh, um, Egypt, wandering around for a long, long time, and there's been a lot of problems. And Moses has been at the center of that. He's led, he's helped, but he's also messed up a number of times, including breaking the, the original tablets, which God is now going to deal with in chapter 34, Exodus 34, the first 10 verses. Let me just kind of read through the story and unpack a little bit. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I, gotta, I, I love this verse more than any of the others here, but here's why, okay? This is God, first of all, giving us that second chance, and he 
gives us a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. But he's giving us that second chance. He's telling Moses, look, Moses, you really screwed up. But here I am, out of my grace and mercy, telling you it's okay. We're going we're gonna to start over. We're going to do this again. Those of you that are golf players, there are unlimited mulligans with God. Okay? That's good news. All right? But at the end of that verse, he says what? Which you broke. I'm just reminding you that you did this. And I'm reminding you so that maybe you won't do it again. Let's not go back and rerun this movie. Let's not go back and start over again. Let's get it right this time. Again, that is the grace of God. His grace not only forgives us and gets us to start over, but it's also his grace that sustains us and gives us the power to do the work that he calls us to do. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to be on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all of the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets out of, sto out of, uh, of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and he went up mount, on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, our God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff neck, it is a stubborn people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us your inheritance. And God said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among you uh, among whom you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is a core characteristic of God, that he is gracious and merciful. And, and I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, look at the awe that Moses understands should be directed towards God. And God didn't come and say, Moses, be afraid of me. Moses, look at me. I am very powerful. Moses, you should be in awe of me. Just the very presence and essence of who God is. And Moses bowed down before him. He recognized who God is, which helped Moses understand who he is. And that he needed favor. He uses that word favor. If I have found favor in your sight, and he had... Please come and be with us. Dwell among us. Let your graciousness and your mercy be for all of us, Moses said. The awe that he has for him was just a natural result of him being in relationship with God and knowing who God is. And we need to understand, God is not gracious because of anything that we have done. God just is gracious. He just is gracious. It is a core characteristic 
of who he is. And the second thing I want you to see about this grace is that for somebody to, to be gracious and merciful in the context of what God is talking about, forgiving iniquity and, and, and having justice carried out, you must also have power and authority. This is not being graceful to somebody as a courtesy. This is being graceful to somebody because you have the power and the authority to be gracious and merciful, to forgive sin, and to mete out justice when justice needs to be delivered. That's the authority and power of God. And Moses recognizes that. And Moses also recognizes because of that grace, because of that authority, and because of the power in which that grace and mercy is manifested, there is no need for himself to be proven. He doesn't have to prove himself. Therefore, you and I don't have to prove ourselves either. God's grace negates the need for us to prove ourselves. Now turn to Luke 34, which is page 574 in your New Pew Bibles, and we'll show you what I think is possibly the greatest text that demonstrates this more clearly than any, and it's Jesus on the cross. It's awesome. It's one of my favorite little passages in the New Testament. Luke chapter 23, we're going to look at verses 32 through 43. This is, this is a wonderful picture of God's
He went to the cross for us in order to serve us. Here's your second assignment. Read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's it, seven verses. But you will see Paul telling you, listen, this is what Jesus did. He came to earth in order to serve us. He denied his glory just to be found like a man so that he could go to his death, even death on a cross, just so that you and I could be reconciled to him and live in eternity with him. It's a magnificent passage of God's grace, of God's glory, of God's goodness, and of God's greatness as he submits to that for us. And then we see that he is gracious at the cross because it pays the debt for us that we cannot pay. Let me just make some observations about this scene. First of all, it's interesting to me, always been interesting, that the very people who crucified him unjustly and the very people who were mocking him and making fun of him and spitting on him and, and who tore their, his clothes off him and are giving him the sour wine, these are the people that Jesus prays for forgiveness. These are the people that Jesus goes to his father and says, forgive them. I am praying for them. There are people in your lives who have metaphorically put you on the cross who have treated you unjustly, who are mocking you, who don't like you, who have sinned against you. This is hard stuff. This is hard for me. I am a person of justice, but God calls us to pray for those people now. He said it in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he does it here on the cross for us. Two of the three people who were being crucified were actually there because they deserved it. That's what the text says. There was one there who was innocent. And both of these criminals, the, both, the two that deserved it, both of them asked to be saved. But one asked to be saved by a false god, and the other one asked to be saved by faith in the real God, the one true God, in Jesus. One was asked to be saved, was asking to be saved by his expectations. The other one asked to be saved by submitting his life to Jesus. That, that word submit or submission, uh, I have a group of guys that I meet with on Monday nights, and, and just this last Monday night I was talking to them about how, you know, submit or submission, it's like the new S word in our culture. We can say the other one anytime we want, even on television, even on primetime television, but I'll tell you what, you talk about submit or submitting in the public sphere today, watch the reaction against that word. Sometimes it is violent. People don't like submission. Yet this guy comes to Jesus and he says, I'm going to do it your way. your way. The other guy says, I'll submit to you, Jesus, if you do it my way. Well, that's not submission. I'll submit to my husband as, as long as, as he's doing everything right. I'll submit to my boss as long as she is making all the right decisions. I'll submit to my teacher as long as that teacher is being just. That's not submission at all. Anybody can do that. Anybody can submit to somebody as long as they're happy and they're benefiting from it. But when you're called to submit because it's the right thing to do and it's because of somebody of authority and it's somebody who's responsible for you and you can't quite see why that's important, that's when submission is tough. One of the thieves gets it right, the other one doesn't get it right. And that is a picture of our whole world today. People want to submit as long as everything goes their way. The minute things go south, though, they're out of it. They don't want to submit to anything that's uncomfortable or unpleasant or tough. Both of them
them why their suffering stopped, but only one was willing to do it through Jesus. And then Jesus says, and this is the crux of the matter, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Jesus just met this guy like five minutes earlier, right? Did this guy have to do anything to prove himself to Jesus? Did he do anything? Were there any works involved? Did, did, did he give Jesus his resume? Did he tell him, look at all these good works I did? I know I know I murdered somebody, but did look at all these other good works in my life. Did he have to prove himself to Jesus? Jesus just said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't do anything to deserve this salvation. Let me ask you this. Does he understand the mystery of his conversion? Is he some kind of salvation intellectual? You know, we Christians in the church, we want to get together and we want to talk about the doctrine of salvation and how does it work and what's the mystery and what did God do and what happened on the cross and how did, what's the physiology of what happened and what was the transaction? We want to know and we want to dig into that. We want to know how are we saved? How does it work? What happens at what moment does my heart flip over? What do we do? Does this guy go through any of that? Does he know anything about that? Just, did he have all the doctrines down? Did this guy know the four spiritual laws? Did he have a clear and cogent articulation of creation, or soteriology, or eschatology, or ecclesiology, or any of the other ologies? Did he even know what an ology was? Had he read the works of, of Calvin, and Luther, and Augustine, and, and, and Aquinas, and Tim Keller? Had he read any of their works? No, he hadn't done any of those things. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. I read Tim Keller. I know three of the four spiritual laws. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, but they're not necessary to prove yourself to God. He is gracious. And then he says, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. He understands that Jesus has that power and authority. Jesus was hanging on the cross, and he looked at him the way Moses looked at God, the Lord, and he recognizes the power and authority that's there, and he knows that he has a kingdom, and he wants to go there. He also understands that he doesn't deserve the salvation, so he gets grace. He understands he doesn't have to prove himself. He just gave his life to Jesus. It's the same thing with you. You don't have to prove yourself. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you have not crossed that line of faith, if you would not identify yourself as a Christian, one who is in Christ, I know for a fact, based on so many conversations, that one of the primary reasons that you will not cross that line of faith is because you're waiting to clean your act up. You're waiting to clean your life up. You're waiting to get something in your life right. You're working on something. You're walking down some road. You feel like you need to be cleaner and more worthy before you can come to Jesus. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. That is Satan telling you not to make that step for all the wrong reasons. You don't need to prove yourself. The gospel is that it is a work of God, his grace in your life, and all you have to do is submit yourself to it. That's the gospel. That is the love and grace and mercy of God. I present that to you today to help you understand why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, Come to me, all of you who are weary and weighed down and tired and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're one of those people who's trying to prove yourself to God before you feel like you can come to God, you're probably tired and worn out from it. Jesus is saying, I'll give you rest. Come to me right now. That's what this guy did. Those of you who already know Jesus, some words of encouragement for you too. 
I would suggest that rather than trying to prove yourself to Jesus, just try to get closer to Jesus. And there's a number of ways to be able to do that. You can do it through his word, just reading his word. Psalm 1, a lot of the psalms talk about the importance of God's word in your life. Psalm 1 says it really well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law, or the word, of the Lord. And on his word he meditates day and night. You can also pray, and it took me a long time to understand and see the value of prayer. And the more I pray, the more I want to pray, because it draws me closer to Jesus. It draws me closer to understanding what his will is for my life, not my will for his life that I want him to reciprocate to me. So prayer works. Also, seeking community. I, I mentioned this group of guys I meet with on Monday nights. Um, I, I will tell you, we go there and we talk about Jesus. And I leave there refreshed and excited and filled up. Because I feel closer to Jesus just knowing that those guys are closer to Jesus. It's one of the it's one of my favorite things that I do. And I will tell you, I seek this community. I don't sit around and wait for somebody to come and invite me into the community. I seek this community because I know how important being in the community of Christ followers is. And so I would encourage you to do that. And and, and two more things I would I would suggest to you, first of all, you really do need to preach the gospel to yourself. Don't just wait until Sunday morning to come and hear the gospel. That God loves you, that he is merciful and gracious, and that he is good to you. And that it is not because of anything that you have done that he loves you and is gracious to you, but it is because he loves you. It is a core characteristic of his to just, just lavish you with grace and mercy. You need to be telling yourself that every day. You need your heart to be connected to him every day because of that. Quit telling yourself how awful you are saying don't do self-analysis and evaluation. I'm saying quit telling yourself how awful you are and start reminding yourself how much you're loved every day. Don't just do that here on Sunday. And finally, remember who you are in Christ. Paul said to Timothy in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul used to kill Christians, and God gave him grace. What's keeping you from coming to God? How many Christians have you killed? None. He's there offering you grace. Paul says, but I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul says, I received grace and mercy because I was ignorant. Because I wasn't smart enough to be saved. I didn't need to prove myself. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, we can't prove ourselves. And the good news is that we don't need to because of the gospel of Jesus. I want to finish by reading this to you. This was sent to me this week by Tim Mon, who's the campus pastor in Gilbert. It's awesome. And it's a great reminder for all of us, those of us who are Christians, those of us who aren't Christians yet, it's a great reminder to us of what the gospel is to us and the grace that abounds. The gospel liberates us to be okay with not being okay. We know we're not okay. 
So we try very hard to convince other people and ourselves that we are okay. But the gospel tells us, relax. It is finished. The pressure is off. Because of the gospel, we have nothing to prove or protect. We can stop pretending. We can take off our masks and be real. Any of you ready to take off your mask? The gospel frees us from trying to impress people, appease people, measure up for people, or prove ourselves to people. The gospel frees us from the burden of trying to control what other people think about us. It frees us from the miserable, unquenchable pursuit to make something of ourselves by using others. The gospel grants us the strength to admit that we're weak, needy, and restless, knowing that Christ's finished work on the cross has proven to be all the strength and fulfillment and all the peace that we could ever want and more. Since Jesus is our worth and our value, now we are free to admit our wrongs and weaknesses without feeling as if our flesh is being ripped off our bones. The gospel frees us from the urge for self-gain, from the urge to push ourselves forward for our own purposes and self-esteem. When you understand that your significant security and, our, and identity are all anchored in Jesus, you don't have to win. You're free to lose. And nothing in this broken world can beat a person who isn't afraid to lose. You'll be free to say crazy, risky, counterintuitive things like this. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Because of the gospel, now you can spend your life giving up your place for others instead of guarding it from others because your identity is in Christ, not in your place. Because of the gospel, now you can spend your life going to the back instead of getting to the front because your identity is in Christ, not in your position. Because of the gospel, now you can spend your life giving, not taking, because your identity is in Christ, not your possessions. Real, pure, unadulterated freedom happens when the resources of the gospel smash any sense of need to secure for myself anything beyond that which Christ has already together and proclaim God's goodness and give thanks to him through song and give our offering in the back.